been looking at a series, what does it mean to be born again? What does it really mean to be initiated? I'll try not to spit on him. What does it mean to be initiated into the kingdom of God? So what does it really mean to be saved? When we talk about salvation and the process, what are the things that we need to go through to actually be fully born again, fully alive spiritually? And we've been looking at that theme rubber. We need to repent. We need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be baptized in water. And we need to receive the Holy Spirit. So as we go through particularly the book of Acts, but the Gospels a little bit, um, there are things that the apostles expected to happen, looked to see that were happening, and then made them happen if they weren't. And so we've been working through that process. Last week we looked at repentance and how getting right relationally with our Father is so important. It's the starting place. It's removing the barriers in our life that stop us from having relationship with God. And then this week we're going to move on to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those four steps are all steps of faith, but they're born out of faith in Jesus Christ. We would only repent because of understanding who Jesus is, what he did for us. That's the the starting point of understanding why we would need to repent and then why we would need to be baptised and why we would need to receive the Holy Spirit. But I thought it would be good this morning just to talk about something that's been on my heart a little bit lately. A lot of people, when we talk about faith, say, well, you Christians believe in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, as God's absolute truth. How do you guys know that? How do you know that these words that you read are really God's Word? Why, why are they just not like any other book that you might pick, off, pick up in a library? What makes these books particular? special? It's a great question to ask. If we think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and from generation to generation to generation they would have scrolls that they would very carefully meticulously copy out and pass down from generation to generation. But if you were a young Jewish boy you had to learn the first five books of the Bible orally and be able to repeat them. So not only did they have a written tradition They had an oral tradition as well, and that was entrenched in their culture. So when we come to the time of Jesus, we had lots of Old Testament scrolls. And what happened at about 300 BC was that the Greek Empire conquered right through Europe. And so the the universal language became, became a language called Corne Greek. And so the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. And if you go to museums in Europe, you can actually see copies of those original manuscripts. Now, the New Testament was predominantly written in that Corne Greek, and some of the books were written in Aramaic, but they were all translated into the Greek language. And those manuscripts, so 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Peter, John, if you go to different parts of the world, you can see the original manuscripts written in Greek. But obviously we can't read Greek and we don't understand Greek. Corne Greek is not even spoken today. If you went to Greece, it's similar, but it's not the same language. So we're actually taking a step of faith to trust that whoever had that original manuscript or looked at it and translated it to English kept the genuineness of the language. But the problem with language is that it changes over time. 
So if I say to you, hey, you need to be fair dinkum about Jesus, you know exactly what I mean, right? But if I'd have said that 2,000 years ago, they wouldn't have any idea. The biggest struggle with our translations is that King James in the 1800s decided that he wanted to put into print a version of the Bible that became known as the authorised King James Version. Now, it's sad to say that a lot of people think that that version of the Bible is somehow unique, that the translation from Greek into English when King James had that commission is somehow better than any other translation. It's not true. It's not true. And people say you cannot use any other translation, you have to use that one. But if you think about it, if, there, if we need to be so pedantic about the version of the Bible that we need to read, we should all really learn Greek, right? Anybody seen a Greek New Testament? A few people have. Um, you're a very smart man. Chris, would you like to read that for me, please? That's the Gospel of John. Can you read that? Oh, I can. That's good. Very good. And arche ein ho logos kai ho logos proston theon. Okay? That means nothing to you, does it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We use the word word. The Greek word is logos. Now, logos means a supernatural cosmic being who became flesh. English, we use the word word. In the beginning was the word. Do you see how inadequate language is? Now, the King James Version is just one version of translation. God can do exceedingly abundantly. God can do magnificent, fantastic. It's just keeping the truth of the original meaning that the author intended that's important. So whether it's a nearly infallible version or a new life transversion, it doesn't really matter because all the hard work's been done by the scholars. They've looked at the manuscripts, they've lined all those manuscripts up, and they've said, yep, that's in that one, that's in that one, that's in that one, that's in that one, that's in... Oh, that bit's not in that one. And whenever there's a difference in the transcripts, they make a notation in it. So if you look up Mark in your Bible, chapter 16, there are certain verses that appeared in most of those manuscripts, but not in some. And so the scholars have said, be cautious because they're not in every one. And so it's great for us not to be pedantic about the version that we use. My encouragement to you is use a different one every year and you just get a different feel. Um, you know, we've got versions out now like the message, very earthy language. And, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it is a way. There's no, there's no version that is God's authorised version, okay? And we need to not get too pedantic about that. Well, that was a bit of a tangent we went on. That's fine. So let's talk about faith, having faith in Jesus. The scriptures say that it's impossible to please God without faith. So our whole life has to be about faith. But the critical thing in talking about having faith in Jesus is totally different to saying, I believe that Jesus existed. Okay. Do you believe that I exist? Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you have faith in me? You do? Do you have faith in me? How would I know that? How would I know that your profession of belief in me is actually an expression of faith? 
I wouldn't know until you did something with your life that demonstrated that you were taking a risk and that I wouldn't let you down. Then I would know that your profession was actually action and then I would know. So if I said, come with me, we're going to stand on the edge of the cliff and jump and you came with me and held my hand and we all jumped, then I'd know that you had faith in me, not that just you had faith that I existed. And so that little word in, faith in Jesus, is so critical because historically people know that Jesus existed. That's not in question. The scriptures are a great document that prove that Jesus existed. There are other historical documents that say Jesus existed. But that's not faith in Jesus. That's faith that Jesus existed. And we're talking about going into a deeper expression of relationship with God. And so our faith starts on a historical basis. It's, it, it's based on the fact that we believe that the account of Jesus' crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection were historical fact. They happened. But those things are objective to us. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I didn't see the nails driven in his hand. I didn't see the spear in his side. So I'm actually taking a step of faith to trust that what happened back then really did happen. We're putting our trust in the evidence of history. That's where we all start. We hear the gospel message, the good news about Jesus Christ. And a lot of people hear that and they say, yep, I can understand that Jesus came, but I don't believe that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did. That's the difference. We're taking a step to believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this. He said, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which we have taken our stand, that gospel message. By this message of the gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to Paul. So what Paul's trying to say is there is truth. There is a gospel that is factual, and we don't base our faith on feelings. We base it on historical fact. That's really important. So when we begin to talk about faith, we actually have to tell people the story. We have to give them the evidence. But then faith becomes personal. So the objective facts that happened 2,000 years ago come into my life and become subjective. They become experiential. They're not just historical fact. They become part of my life. And it's really saying now that Jesus is a person to whom you can relate to and have relationship with. Now, if you believe that Jesus was a person that is now dead, you're not likely to pray to him, are you? Or, 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 or relate to him in obedience. And the thing that we need to teach people is, it, is that you cannot relate to Muhammad. His grave is full. He's not alive. You cannot relate to Buddha. 
He's dead. His tomb is still full. You cannot relate to Confucius, but Jesus is alive. And therefore, on the basis of faith, we can enter into relationship with him. We can converse with him. He can converse with us. We can hear him. He can hear us. And it's an interpersonal relationship. Starts off objective, just facts, but I take a step of faith to believe in those facts. And by doing that, those things that happened back then become part of my life and they become experiential. So our faith is not just a cerebral thing. It's not just believing in certain truths in a book. It's actually allowing those truths to become real in our own life. And so the things that Jesus experienced, we end up experiencing. Jesus had a death. You and I need to have a death. Jesus had a resurrection. You and I need to have a resurrection. The apostles had a Pentecostal experience. We all need to have a Pentecostal experience. And so the things that Jesus went through, we should go through in our experience of connecting personally with Jesus. Have you ever been at, at a um, at a conference or something like that and there's an altar call and at the altar call someone says repeat after me dear Lord Jesus dear Lord Jesus I want to give you my life now that person has to take a step of faith that they're actually speaking to someone that exists and so faith has to become acutely personal for you and me it's illogical that Jesus cannot relate to us we have to know that we can have a really intimate experience with him. So faith is very personal. The third thing is that faith becomes verbal. If I really believe that Jesus is there and he wants the best for me and he's Lord of my life and he has a will and a purpose for my life, then I will talk to him. That's natural. That's just a natural outworking of who we are in Christ and relationship. But then... In our walk with God, it's very natural to talk about him. If you really believe in Jesus, you have no fear of talking about him, that he's part of your life, that he's involved in your life, that he's answering prayer, that he's doing things with you and for you, and and you're in him and, and you're experiencing him in your daily walk. That's logical. And that's what Jesus was saying to the apostles. You need to wait till the Spirit of God comes and you experientially know that I'm alive and that I'm real, but then you go out and you tell the world. And there's nothing greater that when new Christians begin to go and tell their friends, hey, I've met Jesus. What? What do you mean you've met Jesus? How do you know that? I remember singing an old hymn, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. He walks with me and talks to you. I'm getting old, aren't I? He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. So it's experiential. And in the Christian faith, we tell people not to be experiential. Some of the denominations say, whoa, we don't want to get into that experiential stuff. That's ridiculous. Relationship is experiential. We might as well just sit at home and look at our computer screens. I could do blogs and we could just have church at home. Like the whole dynamic of Christianity is experiential, but it's based on fact. It's not based on feeling. It's based on fact, but it becomes experiential. The problem is in some Christian circles, it's all experiential. And so when people come and they gather like this on Sunday morning when the worship's great and the preaching's dynamic, they feel 
great. But suddenly on Monday morning when they're surrounded by non-Christian people and they're all swearing and telling them, they don't feel saved. It's on facts. The facts don't change from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday. Facts remain the same, but then it's through relationship that we experience God. So we talk about Jesus and we talk to Jesus. That's just the natural way that it is. And Jesus said that we needed to do that. He said, everyone that acknowledges me on earth, I'll acknowledge him before my Father. But if we're ashamed to speak about Jesus, then that says to me, I don't think you really believe that he exists because there's nothing to be ashamed about. If you've experienced God, then you know how real he is and then it's just a natural manifestation to want to talk about that experience. Why would you want to shut up? If you've experienced God, if, you've, if his presence has touched your life, if, if you know that he's there, that he's spoken to you, that you can hear his voice, sense his touch, that's what we gather for. That's why I come here, because I want to experience God. I want to fellowship with you, but I don't come here necessarily just for you. I want to be with God and God's people, and I want to walk out of here feeling like I touched my Father's heart and God touched me. And that's what the worship experience is all about. And I feel sorry when people don't experience God because I think you get robbed. If you only live on facts that happened 2,000 years ago and those facts aren't pumping through your veins today in experience, you've missed out on what God wanted. Because experiencing God motivates us. It empowers us. We know that God walks, works in us, walks with us, talks with us, and everywhere we go, we take that power and that presence and life is so different. It's a whole new landscape in life when we know God in that way. So we can't be too embarrassed. We've got to tell people about the Lord and share our faith. And Jesus said, that's just natural. The apostles, he couldn't stop them. We're talking about faith. Jesus put his faith in 12 men, uneducated men. And because of their experience with, with the Lord at Pentecost and all that happened there, even though they didn't understand it all, the empowering of that experience drove them out and the gospel spread. Those who were once fearful became incredibly bold. Why? Because they experienced God. And once you experience God, you can't, you can't dismiss that anymore. You've got to either embrace it and run with it or you walk away at your own risk. And then faith goes from being something in our mind. We believe the facts, we speak it out, and then we need to live it. It's got to become action. It's got to become part of our life. Like Just like repentance, we looked at repentance, starts in our mind, becomes verbal, we confess, and then it becomes a changed life. Same with faith, same principle. Starts in our mind, we confess, we make a profession of faith. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, maker of heaven and earth. So that comes out. We ask people when they're getting baptised, publicly make a declaration that you believe in Jesus. And then we say to them, changed life should happen. That faith should manifest itself in doing. I remember when I was about 15 and my appendix burst. They burst, burst on the Wednesday afternoon and the doctors didn't diagnose it till the Friday afternoon. And I was a very sick boy by that time. And my mum, I said to mum, mum, something's wrong, I'm dying. Something wasn't right. And she took me back to the same doctor who'd done every test possible at that stage. And he, he was 
bewildered. You couldn't figure it out. You just didn't know what it was. I didn't have the normal symptoms. Normally, if your appendix is sore and you jump on this foot, you collapse. But I didn't have the symptoms. I was just had a fever of about 104 and was really sick. And he said, I'll go and get another opinion. There's a surgeon here. I'll go and get him. And this Sri Lankan man came out, big man, smoking a cigarette, had his turban on, everything like that, came out. What's wrong with you, young man? I don't know. And he put two fingers, just like that, two fingers on my stomach. And he looked at the, he looked at the doctor and said, what have you been doing? Get him an ambulance and get it now. He looked at my mum and dad and said, if you trust me, I can save him. My mum and dad are looking at this big Sri Lankan man going, this is our son, do we trust him? Do we trust him? And they had no choice. All they had was a plaque on the wall that said, this guy is a doctor. And that man saved my life, obviously. But you had the exes. My mum and dad had to do something to trust that that man was who he said he was. And on the basis of that trust, I'm here. Praise God. The Dr. J. Assyria saved my face. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about living a life of faith where if Jesus doesn't come through, we fall flat on our face. The sad part about faith in our culture is that we don't live by faith. We really don't. We do little bits of faith when a crisis comes, but we don't live daily by faith. Faith in Jesus to the point where if it doesn't come through, we look embarrassed. And that's the type of faith that we need to get to. When we look through the New Testament and everywhere faith is mentioned, it's all about what people did in response to their knowledge and their experience. It was that it manifest as faith. And it wasn't a moral thing. If you think about Rahab, remember Rahab? She was a prostitute. But she, by faith, kept the spies safe, got them out of the city, and that faith was incredible. She wasn't even a moral person. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, God said to Abraham, Abraham, go. Go to this new place. He had to pick up his whole family and go. So faith is not just something in our mind. It's not just something that we experience. It's something that we live. And God is calling us to be people of faith. Now, here's a confession. I don't think I understood faith until we moved to the mission field. Because it was the first time in our life where financially we didn't have answers, where relationally we didn't have answers. All we knew was that God had said to Cheryl and I, you need to move to Fiji. And part of that was that we had to build a house and we had not the finances to do that. So we had to take a step of faith. And we would have looked pretty silly if we had a half-finished half house. But we didn't have the finances to do the whole thing. We had to start the process. So we excavated the block, put our stuff in a container in Australia and shipped it overseas. I went over there, started building, and then the money started to come, little bit by little bit, from people that we didn't know God just provided. And I realized for the first time I was living by faith. I didn't have the answer. Now, that wasn't an easy place to live in. It's a really hard place to live in, but it's where God meets us in the most miraculous and incredible ways. We need to be people of faith. And faith is when you let go. It's when you jump. It's when you act on God's word. You actually get out of your seat and do something. And most evangelicals, 
believe that faith is accepting the truth of God's word. It's not. You don't even need to know all of God's word to be a person who's living in faith. The Old Testament saints didn't get rewards because they knew every word of the Old Testament. It was because they were obedient. Abraham didn't know anything about God other than God said, go. And he was willing to uproot his whole family and to go. Those great faith chapter in the Bible, Hebrews 11, by faith, this person did this, Gideon did this, Barak did this, by faith, by faith, by faith. We've got to live by faith. Now, interestingly, the word faith in Hebrew and in Greek is exactly the same word. It means faithfulness. It means fidelity. It means being faithful. And here's where I want to challenge you this morning. A lot of people believe that there's some point in your salvation where you cross the line and become saved. I want to argue with you that salvation is on the basis of faith that goes on and on and on. So the faith I had yesterday will not save me today. The faith that I have today will not save me tomorrow. So you're going to ask the question, can a person lose their salvation? The Bible doesn't talk that language. It talks about enduring in the faith. It talks about being abiding in Christ, staying in faith. The just, as Tabitha prayed this morning, the just shall live by faith. Now that comes from the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk was arguing with God. He was saying, God, look at all the unrighteousness in Israel. When are you going to do something? Like these are your people, they're getting away with blue murder, do something. So God said, okay, I'll do something, I'll send the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk said, but don't send the Babylonians because they wipe out everybody. They'll even wipe out the righteous people. And God said, yeah, but my righteous people live by faith. So the ongoing faith in their life will save them. And God is calling us each and every day to live by faith and live out a faith relationship. It's not a one-time decision I made back here when I was 13 that saves me. It's the faith that I live out day by day by day by day by day. And I don't think we teach people that well enough. We teach them to start in faith and to build in faith and to go on in faith and to keep pressing forward so that our faith increases. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach and into bed you go. Remember that story? They were put in a furnace, right? And the challenge to them was, do you believe your God can save you? What did they answer? Yes, we do. But even if he doesn't, we'll go on in faith. Sometimes the circumstances, sometimes the situations don't look good, but we press on in faith with God. I remember the house we were building in Fiji. I ran out of money and I was so depressed. And I was just like, Lord, I've never been in this place in my life. I don't like it. It's, it's a really dry place to be. I'm tr- you brought me here. My family's coming. I need somewhere to live. And not long after that, the people that we were working with brought me in some money from someone from the States who we didn't even know. And God, because we stayed in faith, kept moving forward, even though we didn't see everything, didn't know everything. He's so good. The just shall live by faith. You know, that verse in Habakkuk is used in the New Testament three times. Paul writes in Romans 
1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who goes on believing. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first moment of your life to the last moment of your life, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now here's an interesting thing. The English language does not have the same verbs as the Greek language. The Greek language has a a verb called the present continuous tense. So to understand what the scriptures are trying to communicate about faith is like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever goes on believing in him should not perish but have everlasting right. All the context of faith is about going on, not just saying, yes, I believe tomorrow and stopping. It's about going on. The scriptures talk about walking away from our faith or those who've shipwrecked their faith by not staying in faith. We start in faith, historical facts. We express that faith by starting to communicate with Jesus and telling others about Jesus. But then it becomes so much more than that. It becomes a life of faith where we know by our actions that we're totally dependent on the person of Jesus coming through with the resources, coming through with all that we need. So how do we help people into faith? Teach them the gospel. Teach them the facts. Let them know that it's true. It's real. You don't have to embellish it. You don't have to sell it like a salesman. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It stands on its own. You and I don't have to defend it. If someone has an open heart and you share the gospel, God will do the rest. We just need to teach the facts of the scripture and let people know that it's true. Tell them the facts. But I believe what we've lost in the church is that this biblical principle is to show the gospel first. When Jesus sent out the 72, sent out the 12, he said to them, go into the villages and the towns and heal the sick, drive out the demons, get rid of the AIDS, get rid of the leprosy, get, demonstrate that this faith that you have in me is not intellectual, it has real power and currency today. And so when you see something miraculous and then you come along with the facts, boy, you combine those two together and people sit up and take notice. If you want to argue with people intellectually that the gospel is true, but you have no evidence to substantiate that, I wouldn't believe you. We've been talking this morning about an almighty God for whom nothing is impossible, and yet if you can't show me that, I wouldn't believe you. I wouldn't give up my life and follow Christ if you couldn't show me that that were true. And the church has lost that. We need to come back to signs and wonders, not to be consumed by them because they're a a way that we just demonstrate that what we say verbally and what we believe internally is actually true. That's why everywhere the, the apostles went, they manifest that power because the power substantiates the intellectual and the internal experiential. And we need to teach people that believing in Jesus starts off as this tiny little step of faith of speaking to someone you've never seen or never heard, a historical figure who you trust is alive today. And you speak to him and suddenly he speaks back. You sense his presence. 
Off you go. Take. What's the next step of faith? What do you need God to do in your life? Andre, what do you need God to do? Take a step of faith. Help that person move into faith and start to live out in actions. We need to show the deeds of the gospel and help people to really experience God. Okay, It's not just some little prayer we say at an altar. It's helping people understand it's a life of faith. And my encouragement to you today is we need to find ways in our lives that we step out into faith. Very easy in our culture to be comfortable. We don't need to live in faith because we've got everything. We've got doctors. When you go to a third world country like Fiji and you see that people don't have the resources, suddenly they lean on faith in Jesus and they see things happen because of that the place that they put themselves in. And my challenge and my fear is how do we do that in our culture? How do we actually inspire one another and challenge one another to break out of our mould and then begin to stretch ourselves? What have we got to do to really live in faith in Jesus today so that if he doesn't come through, we'll look silly, but we know that he will come through because he is who he says Yes, and we need to get to that place in our walk with God. I want to somehow find a way that we can stretch one another to be people living in faith and by faith. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for faith. You said it's impossible to please you unless you live by faith. And Lord Jesus, you said, I wonder if I'll find faith on the earth when I come back. You were, you were concerned about our capacity to live dependent on you. And Lord, I want to pray that you would help us some way, if it's in our finances, if it's, I don't know, Lord, relationally, how you're going to help us to trust you more and more. Lord, I want to be a church where we strive for the impossible, where we believe for things that are, are beyond us, where we stretch ourselves and look to you to provide. Father, that goes for each of us in our own workplaces. We need to begin to share the gospel and trust you that you'll come through. We need to use the power that you've given us to manifest the kingdom of God. We don't just believe in some historical figure. We believe in a God who's alive, who's real in the now, in the moment. And you want to speak through us. You want to use us as your vessels. Father, we need to rise up in faith. We need to break off the shackles where we've been so content and so apathetic and come back to living in faith, empowered by your Spirit. Father, would you help us to move deeper into you, relationally, so we would be mighty men and women of faith. By faith, David Rogers did this by faith by faith David Watson did this by faith Mark Wilkinson did this by faith Matthew Patterson did this you get the picture we've got to rise up in faith we know the truth is the truth we've experienced God but now we've got to live it out in a capacity that stretches us and Lord I pray you would show us how to do that in our lives 
that our impact, that our, our catalytic life would be a life of faith. When our friends say, I'm sick, well, I'll say, can I pray for you? I believe God can heal you. When we see financial need, we'll say, I can meet that. We will stretch ourselves beyond what's comfortable and live in that deep water faith where God wants us to be. Lord, help us to do that today. Help us to break out into the freedom.